Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. In this podcast, Professor Nikolai Protovsky looks at the Australian situation. He discusses the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine in some detail, touches upon the failure of the UQ CSL molecular clamp vaccine, and informs us why he thinks the March 2021 vaccine rollout date is not possible. Professor Petrovsky, please tell us about yourself. Thank you. So I'm a clinician by training. Uh, I'm uh, an endocrinologist and I continue to have an active medical role. Uh, But I've always had a passion for research. And so I, after doing my endocrine fellowship, I uh, undertook a PhD uh, in immune regulation, uh, trying to understand the cause of type 1 diabetes. And that that led me into uh, ultimately the vaccine field about uh, 20 or so years ago. Um, And I was fortunate to get funding from the US government through the National Institutes of Health uh, to develop uh, technologies for use in pandemic vaccines. This was just after the 9-11 anthrax attacks and and the US government realised that they needed to do more uh, to develop better vaccine technologies. And I was fortunate to get funding under that program. And then for the last 20 years, I've been uh, supported uh, by the National Institutes of Health and have been developing vaccines against a whole multitude of pathogens Uh, particularly uh, various forms of pandemic influenza, uh, also SARS and MERS coronaviruses, Ebola, Japanese encephalitis, you know, you name it, um, you know, whether it's common or exotic, uh, we have been involved in that space. Nikolai, let's turn our attention to Australia. Was the failure of the UQ CSL molecular clan vaccine completely unexpected? Look, all research, um, you know, is ultimately high risk. You know, maybe only 10% of, uh, you know, hypotheses are ultimately proved. So, so in, in, you know, in a way we had to always assume, and I guess we were trying to educate the, the Federal Health Department about this, is that the probability was that it wouldn't work. You know, if it had worked, fab- fabulous. But, you know, as scientists, we have to be critical of our own ideas. And mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, you know, there, there was a lot of hype around this particular platform. It had never been tested in humans before. Um, you know, it had actually limited animal testing. Um, you know, it, it, it was a fancy idea, but it really came with no background suggesting that it, it you know, was likely to work. And in that context, I do think the whole thing was... Uh, certainly overblown and overpromoted, you know, both, you know, locally, but, but also, you know, obviously by the health department um, who threw unlimited resources at that particular project. Brings to mind an um, interview I had with you many, many weeks ago now, Nikolai, because I understand that you and your team are actually looking at a protein adjuvant uh, vaccine for COVID-19 and I think there are other Australian vaccine trials or at least vaccine candidates, um, but we don't hear of them. No, and, and again, uh, you know, I think that 
all these our other projects um, have been overshadowed by the the massive attention turned by the Federal Health Department on the University of Queensland vaccine for reasons best known to themselves. They only wanted to highlight that program, uh, you know, which obviously was partnered with, with CSL, uh, which is a large and powerful company that receives a lot of government funding. Um, and, and so I think that, yeah, it, it really was that they were attempting to turn the spotlight on you know, one particular project at the expense of all the others. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't think that was, was fair. I don't think it was, I think it's very un-Australian uh, to do that, to, to really, you know, be seen to be picking winners and giving everything to them. Um, despite the fact that, as I say, you know, arguably there were better technologies out there and we would like to think, you know, ours is one of them. Uh, given that we have a track record of 18 years with our platform and have taken it into to many, many human clinical trials and shown that it, it, it works and didn't have similar problems. So, yeah, we still don't understand to this day, you know, why the federal government only wanted to promote the, the CSL, uh, you know, program and, and not anyone else's. It appears to me that for a very small country, we seem to offer a lot and punch way above our weight and that we should be celebrating every one of these vaccine candidates as, as if you like, a feature of Australian inventiveness and cleverness. Um, so it, it, how many vaccines are there or vaccine candidates are you aware of that are coming from Australia? So... Um well, just starting in, in, you know, sort of chronological order. So we were the first uh, vaccine in Australia to go into human clinical trials, um, which you think would get us some attention, um, mm -hmm. you know, followed uh, several weeks after by the University of Queensland, uh, a CSL vaccine, uh, which has now been discontinued. Um, I understand that there is a, um, a DNA uh, vaccine from overseas, which is being tested in New South Wales. And, and again, there've been a number of, there's an, a Chinese vaccine that's been tested in Western Australia um, and uh, an American vaccine that's been tested in Queensland and Melbourne. So um, uh, as far as I'm aware, um, the only two vaccines that have gone into human trials that were developed in Australia were our own vaccine and the one from the University of Queensland. Having had the results we had in Queensland, have you been approached or where, where does Adelaide and South Australian researchers uh, stand at the moment with regard our COVID-19 vaccine? So unfortunately, you know, the Prime Minister was asked last week, you know, on the announcement that the Queensland program was abandoned, which, you know, they had committed, uh, I think, $1.5 billion to that program. Uh, would any of that money be redirected to, you know, the South Australian vaccine program? And his answer was pretty blunt. Uh, and he said that there was no such intention. Um, so I think it's very clear you know, at the level of our own Prime Minister that they want to shut our program down um, and not allow it to move forward. Now, you know, again, someone would need to ask him and, and the Cabinet why, why they you know, don't want to see a successful Australian candidate 
maybe it's because we we aren't uh, you know partnered with CSL. I, I guess that that would be our impression. Look, I, I just need to express a personal sentiment here, Nikolai, um, uh, to say that I am saddened is an understatement. Now. Uh, having had, um, if you like, uh, the UQCSL vaccine fall over, it appears that most of our COVID-19 vaccine eggs now sit in the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine basket. And therefore, it's probably now time for me to ask you uh, to comment on some of the controversy that has already surrounded the trials from this particular vaccine, from the dosing issues, the fact that very few people over 55 have been given the shots and the fairly low efficacy uh, reported. Um, do you have any comments to make about this particular vaccine? So, yeah, I guess, um, you know, again, you know, we're speaking from position where obviously we're developing a, a vaccine, so we don't want to, to you know, um, sound like we're you know, giving conflicted assessment, but, but I want to give accurate assessment of, of what I think about the Oxford vaccine. Mm -hmm. We saw last week, in fact, the Prime Minister double down uh, upon the failure of the University of Queensland vaccine and actually say they're now purchasing twice as much of the Oxford vaccine from CSL. So ensuring that, you know, the billions of dollars committed to CSL don't move elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so the question then, is that a rational decision? And, and to be honest, I don't think it is. Um, you know, the true per protocol outcome of the you know AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine was a 62% efficacy rate. Mm -hmm. So that's the per protocol, the only legitimate statistical measure from that trial was the patients who, or the subjects who got the dose specified by the protocol, what was the level of protection? And the answer is it was 62%. That should have been the headline result. And obviously, you know, compared to the Moderna and uh, Pfizer result of well over 90%, you know, that pales into insignificance. Um, it certainly wouldn't be enough, you know, to induce herd immunity because obviously to get to herd immunity, a vaccine has to be at least 70 to 80% uh, protective at a minimum. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that would raise questions about the feasibility of that vaccine uh, at all. Um, so now, you know, when we got, got into the trial result, because of course, you know, our Prime Minister and AstraZeneca were promoting a headline result of 90%, and you might say, but well, where did that come from? Because mm -hmm. the per protocol result, which is the only legitimate statistical result, was 62%. How did they conjure up 90%? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is that, you know, the, they messed up. Um, so in the early part of the trial, when they were recruiting young, healthy subjects, uh, they accidentally dosed them with a lower dose than they were intending. Um, so it wasn't specified in the protocol. And it wasn't until they'd immunised about 1,500 subjects that they realised the error and corrected the dose for, for the subjects um, going forward. Mm -hmm. So for, the, uh, I think, another eight or 9,000 subjects, they got the right dose. And it was in those subjects who got the right dose that they got a 62% uh, efficacy rate. Mm -hmm. So it turns out when they went back and, and retrospectively analysed, you know, what had happened in this initial, uh, you know, small group, 
that got the half dose of the vaccine by accident and then got the full dose for the second dose, it appeared that there was a 90% uh, efficacy rate. But of course, that has no statistical validity because it wasn't a predetermined outcome. And as well as that, we know that the first subjects into the trial were, were the young, healthy subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you, you try to prove safety in them before you go to the high-risk and elderly populations. So, so again, for those reasons, it's not a representative uh, subgroup, and, and it wasn't an intended subgroup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, it is false to claim that the trial had an up to 90% success rate. That simply isn't true and shouldn't, mm-hmm. shouldn't be, you know, you talked about uh, other than as a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, the regulators, uh, uh, again, are not fooled by, by you know, the, the headline results from AstraZeneca. Um, and so they, they have said that you can't use those numbers, you know, if you want to, or if you believe that there is a benefit giving a, a half dose followed by a full dose, which mm-hmm. is completely unproven, you'll have to go back and do another phase three clinical trial to demonstrate that. Um, Otherwise, basically, the vaccine, that's the end of it. Um, And uh, so AstraZeneca have said that they're going to now do another phase three trial to to test that idea out. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm reasonably sceptical that if they do it properly, that they'll find much more than the 62% they got uh, with the previous trial. but uh, obviously time will tell. Uh, and I noticed they're also now partnering with the Russian um, Sputnik vaccine uh, to test the combination of those, which does suggest that they're perhaps losing confidence uh, in their own vaccine. So it was a bit strange in that context to see the Prime Minister doubling down and buying twice as much of what appears to be a very inferior vaccine that has a high rate of side effects and very questionable uh, efficacy. And I, I really don't think a suitable vaccine to be used in Australia, to be honest. That is such an important comment. I'd like to follow up on that, um, com- uh, if you like, cooperation between AstraZeneca, Oxford and Russia. Uh, first of all, uh, the Sputnik V, it's not exactly uh, you know, completely transparent. It's not as if everything about that vaccine has been reported and peer-reviewed. At the same time, my understanding is that the Sputnik V is also a adenovirus uh, vector vaccine, very, uh, probably human adenovirus from what I understand, as compared to the chimpanzee adenovirus uh, with the AstraZeneca Oxford. Now, I don't get it. I don't get why you keep using different types of adenovirus to try and, um, if you like, transfer the SARS genetic fragments into our bodies, uh, even if you had to combine, what little I understand is, gee, you would probably want to use two different types of vaccines together. So why would AstraZeneca Oxford throw their own reputation to the wind, in a way, teaming up with Russians? So look, it's an interesting question. So to explain the the Russian vaccine, um, it's a combination of Adeno uh, 5, so it's one human adenovirus, uh, which has been used in in the past. For instance, Merck did an HIV uh, vaccine trial with that same vector. 
for an HIV vaccine study, but unfortunately more people in the vaccinated group got HIV than in the control group. So, so that right. you know, was a terrible failure. And in fact, Merck abandoned the adeno5 vector at that point. Right. Um, but it's been obviously picked up again for, for this pandemic uh, vaccine. And then combined with adeno26, which is another um, you know, human adenovirus, the idea behind Sputnik, which I think is a good one, is that um, if you're using a viral vector, typically you can only give them once. Um, because, it, because once you build up immunity to the vector, um, it basically neutralizes the next dose of the vaccine. Um, right. And so what they're trying to do here is get around that problem by using two different adenoviruses, one for the prime and one for the boost. Both right. of them express the same spike protein. Um, but you, they're trying to avoid the anti-vector immunity. And that does seem to have worked. I mean, they have published data in the Lancet. So to be fair, I mean, they did get an early approval before doing the phase three clinical trial, um, but they are publishing, you know, the data as it comes. And, and you know, I think that the data does seem to support that they're, you know, doing better than, than the Oxford vaccine. Right. Um, and, and again, a claiming an efficacy, I think, around the 86 to 90 percent uh, level. So so I don't think I, again, we, we shouldn't be overly critical. I mean, you, you know, um, in that sense, they're not doing any differently to Oxford, but maybe they're doing it more intelligently. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the problem, as I understand it, um, is that, you know, their difficulty is manufacturing those because they have to make two vaccines, basically. So it's double trouble, which is why people try to avoid that. Um, and so the problem is how do they manufacture enough of those two different vaccines um, to provide it to, to certainly Russia and the rest of the countries that are interested in that vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so, so my understanding is that, um, you know, they're, they're looking at, well, you know, if, if they're, I don't know, vectors are different to Oxford's um, and Oxford has already produced a large amount of vaccine that may never be saleable as a standalone vaccine if, mm -hmm. you, if you question Oxford's data then maybe all of that supply can be used by the Russians to to incorporate it into Sputnik um, more because it means they can increase production not because it would make a better vaccine than right. they've already got with their existing Sputnik. So, so I think that, I, I mean, again, you know, that's just my assessment, but uh, I think that's what's happening here. Well, thank you for correcting my misinformed uh, concepts uh, and, and actually allowing me the space to see this alliance uh, slightly differently. Is March rollout in Australia still realistic and feasible? I don't believe so. I, I can't see under any circumstances other than a massive outbreak in Australia um, that we need to, you know, try and curtail uh, how we could have an approved vaccine in Australia by March. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, uh, you know, again, one, one is that, you know, we don't have an approved vaccine really anywhere in the world unless, you know, the Australian government is suddenly going to bring the Russian vaccine or one of the Chinese vaccines to Australia, which does seem improbable. And certainly they haven't discussed that possibility. But of the vaccine candidates they've mentioned, none of them are anywhere close to approval. 
And, and we need to understand the difference between an emergency use authorization and a vaccine approval. Mm -hmm. So an, an emergency use authorization, which, which Pfizer now has in a number of countries, um, is in, in response to an emergency. And it, it's only a temporary uh, allowance to use the vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's not an approval of that vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, and so given that the, the Pfizer vaccine is under an emergency use authorization, Australia could only use it if it goes to a full authorization. Mm -hmm. And as I've said, normally that process would take several years because you have to have sufficient safety data to, to really convince you know, the regulators that it, it, even outside the context of an emergency, that you know, this is an extremely safe platform. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe we can do that without at least one to two years worth of data. Mm -hmm. and, and so if that's the case, it, I can't, I, you know, it, it's, it's inconceivable that in the next 12 weeks, you know, we're gonna have a vaccine suddenly magically approved by the TGA having gone through a full assessment process. I, I you know, um, certainly the Oxford, I don't see, you know, that vaccine being possible. I can't see Pfizer or Moderna. So, so, and I'm not aware of another vaccine out there that's, you know, in, in a position where they could, could request full approval, at, you know, in the next uh, three months and that the TGA could could review all the dossier and even come to a decision, um, which in itself is normally a one-year process. In a way, we are really fortunate to be in Australia with the uh, TGA being as objective and as, if you like, detailed as they are, in the sense that, uh, you know, our, our COVID-19 scenario is actually uh, one of the envy of the world. Uh, we've got time. And as you said, um, the vaccines have only overseas been approved for emergency use. And we can't use the vaccine here without an emergency. And in that case, we need a full approval, which means that our TGA needs to be absolutely sure about safety. So in a way, we are really blessed to have them around and the fact that we have the time and that the March um, date, uh, from what I'm hearing you say, is an impossibility. Yeah, I th to be frank, I think the March date is a political date that, you know, the, the health department and the government have nominated for, for reasons known best to themselves. But I would hope that, you know, the TGA would, you know, take an independent perspective on this and not rush a decision which compromises, you know, the safety of the Australian population. Mm. And, and I don't believe that can be done uh, in any sort of time frame, uh, you know, even close to that. Mm. Um, you know, I would be thinking, you know, certainly the second half of, of next year at, at, you know, and even that would be, you know, arguably rushed. Mm. Um, mm. You know, these things are not easy and it's, it, this has never been done before. Um, and we're talking a lot of new technologies that are unproven. If, if they were looking at a, a protein-based vaccine, you know, platform that's been used in humans, you know, for, for decades, um, I think that would be a completely different context. But here they, they're having to assess completely new technologies that have never been used before. That, that's a much bigger challenge given the absence of data. So again, 
trying to rush that process, I think, would be a big mistake, given Australia is so blessed, as you say, that, uh, you know, we're one of the few countries that's essentially COVID-free, and, and hopefully we can keep it that way. Nicola, I've had just about most, if you like, clear discussion with you about all these different vaccines and, and where we stand at the moment. I would love in the future to come back and speak with you about uh, if there are other changes happening in the vaccine field. I would love personally to be talking to you about a protein adjuvant vaccine that you may be that you that may somehow get a nod in the future. I'd be delighted to talk not just about our you know protein based approach, but you know there are a number of other approaches being taken in a similar line from companies such as Novavax in the United States. And you know I still believe that you know that the protein based approach, because it's such a well established approach. You know, if, if we can get equally, you know, successful headline efficacy data in phase three, then I think they become the obvious candidates because I think people can be confident they know enough about them that they're not taking on, you know, unknown risk uh, mm. in approval. So, so I'm, I'm still, you know, very much believing, and as I say, you know, given the context, we have a, a protein-based vaccine ourselves, but that the protein-based vaccines are the best ultimate solution to this crisis. But, you know, they just take more time. They, they're more difficult uh, to get uh, up and running. Uh, but ultimately, I think it would be much easier to approve once we have that, you know, phase three efficacy data on board. Well, I certainly hope to talk to you more about that. Do you have any final messages for our listeners? So I think that it's, it's really that, you know, we are trying to develop vaccines around the world, um, that it's, you know, a vaccine will ultimately, you know, be very beneficial, but it, it isn't uh, a magic bullet. Uh, that, you know, even once we have vaccines, they take time to take effect. Um, and to get them to enough people to, to induce, hopefully, herd immunity. Mm. Um, and so I think in reality, you know, this pandemic is going to be with us for quite some time, and we need to prepare ourselves for that, mm -hmm. um, that we shouldn't just assume that a vaccine, once it's available, is, is going to instantly solve the problem. So we, we do need to be realistic. Yeah, vaccines are vitally important, uh, but we also need to put them into context that, that you know, they're not going to solve the problem overnight. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but we shouldn't stop developing vaccines um, because we, we definitely are going to need them. Nicola, I just thank you so much for all that wonderful bits of information. As I said, hope I will be speaking to you soon. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Pleasure is mine. You have a very good day, Nicola. Okay, cheers. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, 
wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.